Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where, along with my partners, Ann and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. It's 2020. I think for most of us, it's time we author the life we were meant to live and regain control of our lives and decide who we want to be and how we can achieve that. Sounds so easy, right? Well, sometimes you need a tour guide to help you, and that is exactly why we invited to our show today psychotherapist Flip Flippin, already a New York Times bestselling author, serial social entrepreneur, philanthropist, internationally respected speaker, and thought leader. He's founded many successful companies, including one of the largest education training companies in North America, the Flippin Group, and has worked with leaders like Jack Welch and quarterbacks like Terry Bradshaw, we'll talk about later, as well as boardrooms and something that means the most to me personally, and we'll definitely get into classrooms. Bottom line, he's dedicated himself to helping people write a new story. We are all human, and many times we let other people or other situations at work, school, or at home control the outcome of our lives. His first book, The Flip Side, Breaking the Behaviors, that was a huge success, and it helped so many people worldwide. Today, we welcome Flip, who has appeared on the Today Show and Good Morning America, and who's just published his third book, or is it your second book? Second book. It's a second Second book, book. but it says third in it, so (laughs) I get confused. It's called Your Third Story, Author the Life You Were Meant to Live. So, Welcome to Financially Speaking, Flip. I'm so honored you have taken the time to stop by and chat with us today. That's a treat, Mitch. Thanks for having us. Uh, Well, listen, I want to kick things off today with the S word that clearly has so much neurological impact on our kids in the classroom and adults like me, for example, in the workplace. And that is stress. Personally, Uh, my own worst enemy. Really? Yeah. Really? Well, I didn't know exactly where you were going there at first. But, uh, I'm getting better at it. Yeah, hey, but listen, you're right. Mindfulness, yeah. meditation, working out, all those things. But Well, you know, it. it's interesting, Mitch, that you bring that up as, a, as an opening question. I mean, that's a huge issue for really everybody. But let me, let me give you a little neuroscience if I can. Mm-hmm. So events take place in your life, and they all – everything. I mean, the cup of coffee you just picked up. All the sensory input that you get, people walking by, visual, auditory, sensory stimulation, all of that comes up your brain stem and it hits a particular region in your brain called the limbic system. Mm-hmm. Inside the limbic system is a particular functioning structure called the amygdala. You spell it Amy Gadala, but right. it's pronounced amygdala. Right. And that's that freeze, flight, or fight response. Mm-hmm. Well, that thing is hypersensitive to stress, and cortisol impacts it. It begins to shrink the hippocampus, which is where your short-term memory is. So let me give you an example of that in real right, life, right. okay, mm-hmm. without all the neuroscience. Sure. You'll get up in a high-stress period of time. If you've had stress for more than six months, it could be somebody sick in your family, financial stress, decisions, and you'll walk into a room to get something and literally forget why you went in there. Hmm. You will literally be standing there like, oh, my gosh, I'm losing my mind. Yeah, I know well, I know it well. <laughs> the, the reality is you yeah. are losing part of it. Your hippocampus, the short-term memory, is being impacted by these long-term elevated levels of stress. 
And that's what it does. Now, here's the trick, and this is beautiful to me. Paul Zak, a neuroscientist out of Claremont, many, many others have found in the last four years that you can regrow the hippocampus. And so when you take the stress away and you begin to do some particular practices that are really, really helpful, you actually can regrow that structure in your brain. Now, we never knew, Mitch, we could regrow a structure in your brain. No. I mean, it sounds crazy. It sounds it's like, let's grow fiction, another really, hand. Really. It really is. But the, the reality is, is we can regrow that area of the brain, which to me is quite beautiful. So, so we take kids that are in high-stress environments, and they can't learn. Of course they can't learn. Their hippocampus is shrunk. Mm -hmm. Short-term memory shrunk right. because of elevated stress. Take guys in your industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at a heavy economic downturn yeah, Let's 2008 go to, i remember go to it well i can barely remember how to get to work <laughs> yeah i mean 2008 2009 yeah. <laughs> i can promise you you were not even remotely functioning at 100 percent. and the reason for that is the stressful impact that had and especially on you because you care right you know if you didn't care well that's a sociopathic behavior well, that's, that's a yeah. different deal <laughs> yeah <laughs> that'll be the fourth book but we'll <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> so what about aging? You know, talking about the hippocampus and being able to grow it. Like, how much does stress obviously is important, but, you know, we all call it senior moments. And, you know, I'm in my late, late 50s, we'll say. And I notice definitely these senior moments, or are they really more of the stress moments? Yeah. I, so odds are high they're not senior moments. Mm -hmm. I would say that they're not, and especially well, at your at your <laughs> age. And, mm -hmm. But we refer to them that way. But they they really are generally the result of serious levels of stress mm -hmm. over a period of time. And the exercises you talked about, is that something that's in your book or people can no, go on your we website? Don't really, and, yeah, we yeah. don't really address that in the mm -hmm. book per se, but, but, but let me give you just some simple right. things because what will regrow it, what really, we're trying to relax the amygdala, okay, this freeze, flight, or fight part. Mm -hmm. we, once the amygdala is safe, the hippocampus is able to really begin to heal itself. And so, for example, I met you downstairs. Mm -hmm. Now, you probably don't really remember this, but I do. I'm a shrink. I can't mm -hmm. help it. But how did you greet me? How did Ashley greet me? How did Jordan greet me? You know, it was nice. It was warm. It was a smile. You said, oh, read your book. Look mm -hmm. at your stuff. Mm -hmm. I've, that makes me feel really nice. And so I got very positively affirmed from that. Now, let me tell you what happened. My oxytocin levels went up. My serotonin levels went up, and I can't really stop that because you smiled at me mm -hmm. and you greeted me warmly. Everything in me neurologically responds to that. And so if you want to say, how do we regrow that? I put you in really good, safe relationships, trusting they're warm, they're mm -hmm. affirming. The two things that jump your oxytocin levels universally, right. unless you're a sociopath, right. are puppies oh. and babies. Okay, well— We've there got two kids, and we've always had three dogs. So well, there you are. I mean, that, and that, I promise part you, of it. if they had puppies, yeah. you would start feeling better already. <laughs> so so worst case, rent a puppy. <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, please. I never get enough. So as a former two-term Board of Ed member and an advisory board member to a uh, kids' music nonprofit, I've always been fascinated to hear about programs like your Capturing Kids' Hearts and how that's helped to elevate the academic and behavioral standards of millions of students and thousands of classrooms across the country. So I'd like to hear a little bit about the origin of that program, because it's really remarkable. Oh, wow. Thanks, Mitch. I had another question I didn't expect. You're, you're a charm here. <laughs> well, so when I got out of graduate school, so this is not a career track. I advise for right. anybody. 
But when I got out of graduate school, I went to work with gang kids, and I worked with a lot of a lot of different, uh, very very difficult situations. And I built a large, free outpatient nonprofit clinic, about thirty five clinical staff, running around five hundred patients a month. And and then I built a five hundred acre residential treatment center. And then after sixteen years of working with high at risk families and and kids, the governor called in Texas and said, "Can you?" put your programs in schools because these kids that you're working with, they're having amazing results coming mm -hmm. back into our schools. And he sent the commissioner of education and the commissioner came and sat down and said, we want you to teach our teachers how to build really connected relationships with kids that are focused on driving performance. It's not just kumbaya. Mm -hmm. It's how do you convert that to performance? Well, like I just said, which, I'm really impressed with your question. Your first question, what's the impact of stress or dysfunction or poverty or high at risk? See, all that keeps you from being a performer or a, or a good learner in school. So what happened is as we put together Capturing Kids' Hearts, I believe if you have a child's heart, you've got his mind. Right. Well, once I've got his heart, I've got him. Now hmm. let's go to work. And that's when you can really do the neat stuff that needs to be done. Now here's another one that all of us are concerned about. All the active shooter programs, right. all the at-risk deals. Right. Connected kids don't kill. Right. Connected kids don't kill. No. They don't kill themselves, no. and they don't kill other people. No. And so the more empathy, the more connectedness, the less alienation, the less sense of being disenfranchised that kids and, and staff, teachers, right. you, me, all right. of us feel. The healthier we are, the healthier our community is around us, the healthier our community at large is. Well, it's, it's incredible. That's what a wonderful thing, and we'd certainly love to see more of that around the country. And it's interesting what you're doing. It's, it's similar in a, another way, as I was talking about being on the nonprofit in the music world, and Steve Van Zant, who you, know, you may know from The Sopranos, and Bruce Springsteen's guitarist, and he runs this foundation called Rock and Roll Forever and Teach Rock, and it's tied into another organization called Little Kids Rock, and they bring music into the classroom. Yeah. So all of these schools, mostly inner city schools that don't have the ability, they got rid of all their programs in the No Child Left Behind era. So, you know, they bring in the instruments. And then the smart thing is they teach kids songs they want to learn. They don't go in there and just teach them theory and Bach and Beethoven. But, you know, someone says, well, I want to hear Wiz Khalifa or I want to hear Taylor Swift or whatever it is. That's right. They'll, they'll do that. And now that organization has grown to a point where actually Wiz Khalifa and Taylor Swift might surprise them one day in their classroom. And they, they've done amazing things. And I would just add that music probably, I know for me, that's one of the great, greatest helps for stress is music. Well, it is. And, and there's a lot of great research around it. And Mitch also, thanks for serving on that board. We don't have enough guys really stepping up. We need more people stepping up and serving on those boards because those kids, they, they long for mentors. They yeah. long for healthy relationships with appropriate adults and, that's phenomenal. But music is a powerful tool because, one, you can do it by yourself, but when you're making music with somebody else, mm -hmm. the synchronicity right. and the connectedness and the how do you play with this other person, not how do you compete against them, which is really what our right. schools do. Exactly. i got to get the best grade. Mm -hmm. that's, that's not the kind of community I want to build. I want to build one where it's like, okay, you – played that rhythm this way? How do I harmonize? Where do I come in? How do we make music together? And that's the beauty of that. That's the power of those it programs. It is. And, and that's exactly the, the Little Kids Rock program, David Wish, who was a 
been on the show and someone I've been involved on on their board. That's exactly what they do. And and, and it's just really, really great stuff. So before we get to the new book and hear about your third story, I think our listeners might want to hear about your definition of what our first two stories are and how they (laughs) shape our lives. Well, this is great. So, so, you know, if I said, so Mitch, tell me about your early life. Well, you're going to do what all of us do. You're going to say, oh, well, I was born here. Right. And I grew up here. And these are my parents. Mm-hmm. And maybe I had one parent. Maybe I didn't know my parents. Maybe I'm adopted. Mm-hmm. This is the town I grew up in, the schools I went to, the sports I played, yada, yada, yada. You know, and that's part of your life for sure. But you didn't write that story. That's not your story, man. That's true. You did not write that story. You lived it, but you didn't write it. You were born into it. I was born into uh, uh, some difficult circumstances and that sort of thing. But, but the reality is, is I didn't, I didn't write that early story. Hmm. I lived it. Right. Well, that, that's your first story. Well, somewhere around adolescence, we begin our second story. And our second story to me is really intriguing because that's where most people stay. They literally live in that story. And, and I, I'll give you a great example. I, I was sitting in middle school, and there was a girl. You know, there's always a girl. Of course there is. In, in yeah. a great especially, story, there's especially a girl. Especially middle, middle school, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm sitting here looking mm-hmm. at her. She's beautiful. Mm-hmm. She's athletic. Right. She's smart. Mm-hmm. She's talented. And, you know, of Probably course, six I, inches taller than you at the time, probably. <laughs> I had an advantage. I was tall early. Oh, you know? okay. I was one of the few guys. Yeah. But, but you know, I, and, and so, of course, you know, I want her to be my girlfriend mm-hmm. in middle school. I mean, why would you not do that? And. Uh, and so we, there was a school dance coming up, and so what do you do? Well, man, you cowboy up and ask her out, but I didn't. Hmm. And, of course, why didn't I? Well, you have a story. You see, it's just like us sitting here right now. We have a story why we're here. I don't have a tie on today. Why don't I have, I have a story for that? What car do I drive? I have a story. There's the reason I drive that car. We have a story for everything we do, but the catch is most of them aren't true. We lie to ourselves to make ourselves okay, like we are, where we are. And so I, you know, what was my story for not asking her out? Well, I had a ball game. I was pitching a game mm-hmm. that week. I, you know, it's a Friday night. I had a game. I was pitching. I'm not missing that game. Right. Well, that's a great story, sure. isn't it? And it's true. Mm-hmm. I did have a ball game. Right. That night. But you know what the problem is? I didn't have a ball game the next week. Right. Or the, or the week after. Yeah. Yeah. You got the point. Right. You, you gave yourself that opportunity, and you, you just said, ah, forget it. And yep. I never asked her out. Right. And why didn't I ask her out? It's because I was afraid. I didn't want to be rejected. Fear. I didn't want these issues to happen. I could come up with a hundred reasons why I did not ask her out. But here's, here's the catch. There are a hundred reasons why I didn't do a lot of things. Right. I didn't go places. I didn't meet people. I didn't try things. And that continued on all the way through school. And then I'm in my graduate program, and I'm at a and I'm working on my doctorate. I'm having a great time. And sure enough, I get invited to go to one of the top schools in the world, and I meet the head of the department, and he invites me. And, well, seven years later, I meet a friend of mine, and he mm-hmm. says, well, how was it at mm-hmm. such and such? And I was like, oh, well, you know, I didn't go. <laughs> what? Flip, you're an idiot. Why didn't you go? And I was like, well, I didn't go because, you know, and I gave him my five reasons. Right. And literally, Mitch, he looked at me and he said, you are so full of bull. Right. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And so I repeated my story, but with more emotion this time. Mm -hmm. So he would really catch on. He wasn't buying it. 
And that's when I really realized, you know, the reason I didn't go is because I was afraid I'd fail. Of course. I was afraid I'd be caught as a phony. Mm -hmm. I would not make it. I'd come home as a loser. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was 27 years old, and I thought, I'm done with this. I'm not lying to myself about stuff anymore. If I'm afraid of something, I'm going to own it. Right. But I'm going to look at it and say, okay, what can I do about this? Can I, can I do something about this? That's the reality of the second story. People stay stuck in that second story, though. Yeah. And they tell themselves all kinds of reasons to legitimize why they didn't try a new job or launch a company or ask somebody out or develop a new friendship. So in your opinion, as uh, in your psychotherapist hat, I guess, so how can we rewire our own self-talk and, and the self-doubt? So turn that voice in our head that says we're not, like you said, fill in the blank, enough to succeed. How do we do that? I, for example, you work with Terry Bradshaw, one of the great greatest quarterbacks of all time, just beyond, beyond football. I mean, he's just bigger than life in many ways. And, and you know, we actually met once in Hawaii, had sushi together, and terrific guy. But I mean, guys like him have self-doubt? They're all of us. Mm -hmm. All of us do. Some of us just learn how to live above it. You know, I don't, I don't want you to live within your talents, mm -hmm. Mitch. I don't want you to live within your talents. I don't want you to live to the limit of your talents. I want you to live beyond them. I want you to live beyond your dreams. I mean, if you dreamed about what you could do with your life right now, I can promise you it's not anywhere close to what your potential is. And I don't care what your dream is. I mean, somebody. when I was a boy, I wanted to go to Africa. I wanted to go to Africa and have an adventure. You mm -hmm. know, as a, as a young boy growing up on a ranch in Texas, right. that's what I want to do. And, but did I ever believe I was going to do that? No. Did I think that was a possibility? No. I was barely getting through school. You know, I, I wanted to be successful in business, but, you know, I, I fail all my math classes. I have a learning disability. I get out fourth from the bottom in high school. I can't. I got into college on probation. You know what I'm saying? And those things begin to write on us. So if I asked you, if you've been to Zimbabwe, you could say yes or no, or you could say what I want you to say, which is, well, not yet. No, which is absolutely the answer. And, and for my 60th and my wife's 60th, that is part of our plan for next year. Uh, seriously? We're working on uh, putting together a, a trip to somewhere to do a safari hey, in South, well, South Africa. So, so yeah. let me tell you that's something. That's been a dream. That's absolutely been a dream. More a dream of hers than mine, but absolutely wonderful thing to look forward to. Well, I can't tell you how much yeah. I love hearing that. So in October, the issue of National Geographic came out about the trip we had in Zimbabwe, mm -hmm. darting giraffes and rhinos oh, wow. with Ivan Carter oh. and all that out of a helicopter as part of the anti-poaching program. And I've been to Africa mm -hmm. multiple times. Okay. You're, you're definitely the guy to talk to oh, about sure. that trip. I'll, I don't believe know me, if I'll my wife's going to be sitting on the edge of the helicopter. I couldn't get her <laughs> on the zip line. But. So let's talk about the new book, your third story, Author of the Life You Were Meant to Live. Focusing, you know, on the future now. How do we reframe this past to find the good? Well, so let me give you a couple of thoughts on sure. this. One is people don't change without an emotionally compelling reason. And you've really got to get that. Mm -hmm. If I said, oh, here's why you ought to do something different, give you 50 reasons, or if I incentivize it or challenge it or whatever, you won't change. You will not change. I'll get a little blip on the scale, but you're mm -hmm. not going to change. We have to have an emotionally compelling reason. Now, Mitch, not a compelling reason, an emotionally compelling reason. People change the things in their life because there is an emotionally compelling reason for them to change. You got it? 
And that could be stocks, it could be companies, investments, mm-hmm. whatever. It's an emotional deal. Right. You justify it with logic, mm-hmm. but I can promise you at its core, it's emotional. So first thing I want to know is what's the emotionally compelling reason to do anything? The second thing is, is what is it that you want? What do you really want? And very few people will really take the risk of saying, you know what, this is what I really want. I really want to do this. And the clearer that definition is, and the more emotion attached to it, I can promise you, you're going to find a way to pull it off. I love that. So let's talk about some tips on on how we can write a third story. So I mentioned earlier of a friend, and he's kind of a social media icon, Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V. He and Bruce Springsteen get mentioned once, once a show. That's just how it works with me. But lately, Gary's had this saying, and it's just pretty simple. And he says, we're all going to die. Now what? And he actually put that on his new K-Swiss sneakers that he has out. Yeah, I love it. On the back of it, it says, you're going to die. On the other side, now what? Yeah, yeah, that's good. And what he's really saying there, I think, is live in this moment. Exactly. Take this moment and make the very most of it, the best of it, that you absolutely can. And and I I think, I mean, there's great reality to that comment. You know, yeah. now let me let me give you a thought. Sure. So many people in their in their second story, they tell themselves why they can't do things, and they end up with somewhat of a victim mindset or mm-hmm. certainly a, a fixed mindset where you're in your circumstance. And, of course, we talk about finding the lies in that situation. But, but what would happen if I told you that we could not be here if you had not been there? Now, let me explain this. If I asked you, Mitch, straight up, what is something that was heartbreaking for you in your life? You're going to know it immediately. You're immediately yep. going to know it. Yep. Now, the question is, is what did you do with there? Because mm-hmm. you were there at some point in right. time. My deal is, is that I could not be here if I had not been there. Now, if that's true, then I want to do everything I can to define what my next here is going to be. You got it? Got it. There are things I can change to make this next, this future, a reality in my life. And I know, you know, Susan and I have Mm -hmm. raised 20 kids, and we have a huge family and Mm -hmm. all that sort of thing. Our kids, so many of them have come out of really difficult situations when we got them. And, And I grieve that, and I'm sad about that, but being a victim doesn't work. It does not work. Whining is not a strategy. No. And I'll sit with them and cry and listen to that for a couple of weeks. Right. And that's about it. Right. And then, and then it's like, guys, okay, Figure I got out it. where there's going to be. I got it. Yeah. Your there was terrible. You're here now. What do we do with here? What do we do with where you are right now? Let's optimize it. And let's define tomorrow. What do you want it to be? And you learn to live with that intentionality. And that's the beauty of it. And that's what the book does. It gives mm-hmm. you really logical steps in how to get there. Wow. It's a great. I listen. Really, I love it, Mitch. Uh, yeah, I, this this is we're we're going deep, folks, and we'll obviously be linking to this book. And if I was live on the radio, I'd say if you're the third caller, I'd give you one. But this isn't radio anymore. It's the land of podcasting. That's right. Um, one of the things I, I read about also is that you have this theory, OPC, overcoming personal constraints. Yeah. That without yeah. getting too technical, well, why don't you just break it down? <laughs> because uh, the only way I'm going to talk about it is, is get well, technical. Mitch, but I Jesus, love this. You know, we're sitting in the down. middle of UBS right now yeah. with all the traffic and people. Yeah, we're sitting at a fun. diner booth today, hey, folks. we're having fun. This we're is a great spot. At UBS, but this, a little this, different this today. This is a great spot, yep. though. It really is. And 
But, you know, so let me give you an example. So you have an 18-month-old, mm-hmm. and he's not potty trained. And that's an age-appropriate issue. At 35, that's a constraint. You got it? Right. If you're five years old and you're in the grocery store mm-hmm. and you're throwing a fit, right. I get it. You right. didn't get what you want. If you're 45 years old and you're sitting in the boardroom, you act that way, that's a constraint. So if you just think about parenting, that's what parents do every day. They look at their kid, and they're sitting here saying, you know what, sweetheart? The way you're acting right now, it won't work 20 years from now. And i got to get that out of your life. That is a constraint in your life. I see kids, their self-confidence scales are too high. Mm-hmm. So they don't listen to anybody. Right. Nobody can talk to them about anything. And I'm like, you know, bless your heart, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's Texas slang for sure. you got a lot to learn. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you look at that and you start saying, what are the constraints? So our contention, and this is why we went to IMG mm-hmm. and Mark McCormick and professional right. sports, there's a start and a stop. Right. You know, if I can find what is the major constraint impacting your life, if it's Johnny Menzel or Terry Bradshaw or mm-hmm. Brett Favre or whoever it is, You're it doesn't basically matter. Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was going to have Woody Harrelson play you in your movie, but in, in your third story movie, but that, that, but you really coach Taylor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, and so that's what you're after. And so how do you, how do you identify? Because anytime you're working on a non-constraint, it's wasted effort. You know, if I, I mean, literally, if I'm sitting here saying, you know, Mitch, here's what you ought to be working on, but it's the wrong diagnosis. It doesn't matter how good you are at it; you're not going to get any better. And so the trick is to identify what is the most critically impacting constraint in your behaviors that is keeping you from optimizing. And, of course, we've built all kinds of behavioral metrics, but the book, the flip side, has got simple stuff to help you get a good feel over it. You know, are you a bulldozer? Are you an ostrich? I mean, do you, do you avoid conflict or do you, are you too aggressive, too assertive, too loud, not loud enough? There's mm-hmm. a thousand things. Yeah. So – you brought this up, and I was going to bring it up as well. Something obviously you know a great deal about are kids, and you talked about how you yeah. and your wife Susan have raised over roughly twenty kids. Not roughly twenty. <laughs> twenty. Don't, exactly. don't add this. That's true. <laughs> it's twenty <laughs> at your ranch in College Station, Texas, from all over the world. And, and listen, incredible. I salute you, and I also kind of want to know what story was that for you and your wife? Was that your first story, second story, where, where oh, how no. did that come from? That's part of that's yeah. part of this great story that we've really chosen to write with our life. And but you know, you fall into these stories sometimes. You you don't intentionally. I mean, I didn't sit out and say, "Oh yeah, we want to raise a ton of kids." Mm-hmm. I did not do that. Right. When I was seeing patients and working with gangs, there was this little girl that was homeless and on the streets. And I know what happens to homeless little girls on yeah. the streets and it is not a good picture right and i called my wife and said babe i gotta bring this kid home for a few days and you know i'll find a place and we'll get it worked out and so you know i took her home and it wasn't a few days it was three years <laughs> <laughs> and she went on and became a very successful attorney and built wow. a beautiful life and has great kids and i love her dearly and and then our son from Ghana's got a PhD in toxicology. One of the boys has got a PhD in statistics. MBA's out of Cornell. Our youngest two mm. boys, Mitch, we got when they were six and ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, John and Roger, and uh, you know, really tough backgrounds for those two kids. And 
Uh, we tease everybody because Roger, the youngest, has been a little bit of a disappointment. We thought he was going to become a doctor, and mm-hmm. he became a dental surgeon. So. Oh, well, there you go. You know, oh, well. <laughs> We've adjusted, you know. No, it's That's been a funny. great journey for us. And, you know, speaking of kids, one of the issues that I dealt with greatly as a, as a public school board member was bullying. I mean, this just came up over and over. And I'd love to hear your take on this before we uh, wind this up on how to talk to our kids about bullying. How do you think parents and educators should handle those that misbehave? Well, so let me flip this around, okay? No pun intended. (laughs) Or pun intended. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. So every time somebody asks me about what do we do about bullying, I always look at the adult and say, I think you should probably stop it. <laughs> and they're like, that uh, what do you mean? Well, let me just give you some scenarios. Look at Congress today. Yeah. Look at how the right. leaders in our country treat each other. Right. Terrible and conduct role business models. with right. each oh, other. We're as ba- a bad a role model as we've ever been. Look, yeah. look, and I'm not talking about yeah. the president. I'm yeah. talking about Congress. I'm talking about across the board. Right. I am so put off by this. And so people say, well, our kids are struggling with bullying. They've been taught how to bully at every level of our society today. Sports. So, we see yeah. it a lot in sports. You, you see it in sports. Mm-hmm. You see it in the in, arts, in, in, in the arts, films, entertainment. Yeah. Right. You see it in education. Right. You go to a you school board music. meeting. Yeah. Go to a school board meeting that's dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. I've sat in many of those oh. that, I mean, we're the largest educator training company in North America. Right. We're in schools all the time. And I look at the adults. The teachers generally are amazing. I'm looking at some of the adults, the way the parents show up, and they scream and yell at the teachers. They're abusive. I look at board members that are they have their own agendas. I'm like, yeah, you have to check. It. One thing I learned as a board member, and again, I'm in a in a nice district in in Westfield, New Jersey, and we had plenty of our our own issues, but fairly fortunate, you know, a fairly wealthy area. But there were a lot of board members that were unable to check their egos at the door. And that was the best advice I got going in day one. Yeah. Um, because I tend to want to speak up and, and I, 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 it took me a while to realize I got to listen, I got to take it all in, you know, and then obviously speak up when I need to. But yeah, that I know there are a number of boards, especially in the inner cities and, 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 and elected boards versus appointed boards. And I mean, you can go on forever with issues there. Well, there's, uh, Mitch, there's some research right now that we're working on on corporate bullying. Mm-hmm. Let's just think about that. How many meetings do you sit in where somebody is absolutely so incredibly inappropriate? Mm-hmm. They put people down, they shame them, they embarrass them, they humiliate them. They have to be right. Yeah. Fortunately, none yeah. now, but boy, early in my career in this industry, it was that was the way it was. Exactly. I don't exactly. see that at all that you know at that UBS, but you know just not it's not the culture anymore. Yeah. But it still is the culture in a lot of businesses. It is, and I, mm-hmm. I candidly, I mean, I've just participated in working with some of the executives in one of the largest business failures in history. And I look at that and what's happening, and I watched some of the people at the top act like complete sociopaths. Right. Everybody was terrified of them. They did exactly what they were told until they figured out it was all illegal. And so when we talk about bullying with kids, I'm sitting here saying, let's be sure we're modeling at home what we ought to be doing when our kids start talking negatively to somebody else. I mean... Two of our young family, 10-year-olds, last week, what were they playing? No, oh, they were playing some great game mm-hmm. right now. It's really mm-hmm. popular, and, and it's a group game. It's a team game. Right. And one of the, one of the 10-year-olds 
said to one of the kids online, you know, if you talk disrespectfully today, we will not let you be part of our team anymore. Wow. And I'm listening to this, and after they're all through, I said, so what brought that on? And he said, you know, we just wrote some rules. We have a social contract. And it I comes from what generation. we're doing in school. <laughs> but, you know, here are these children saying, yeah. here are the rules for how we want to play. They're fed up. I mean, that it, it's, it's a conversation I've had so many times on this show. We did a show on millennials and, and, and millennials and money. And my kids are basically millennials. One is kind of on the Gen Z border, but that generation really gets it. I mean, they're, they're so frustrated. They grew up with, you know, they grew up with 9-11. They grew up with, you know, these failures in business. They grew up with this great recession. Now they're watching just without getting into anything political, just watching craziness. Let's just put it out there. That's right. And, and I, I think they get it. And I, I, that gives me hope. That really gives me hope. Well, you're because right. You have hope. And, and back to the mm-hmm. book, you know, yep. your third story. Think about this. How many people in the business community, and especially in financial services, mm-hmm. candidly, right. I know the data on financial services from a behavioral point of view. In financial services, I have watched people sit in meetings where people are so disrespectful, they talk down to people, they shame them, they embarrass them. But if you're sitting in that room and you're telling yourself a story, now, follow this minute. You're telling yourself a story, your second story, saying, well, that's just how it is. Well, it couldn't be any different. Well, I don't want to lose my carry on the deal. Well, I've got a lot tied up here. And you tell yourself these stories so that you don't speak up, so that you don't change jobs, so that you don't address inappropriate behavior. I've seen people watch things, people being bullied, women being treated so disrespectfully, men men as well, across the board. And you start telling yourself a story. Well, that's how it is. Let me just tell you, brother, you're lying to yourself. You're flat lying to yourself. And if you're participating in that, don't go home and talk to your kids about bullies. If, if you don't have the ability to stand up and speak up, and change those things, you'll never be in a leadership position that people respect. You may run something, you may own something, but nobody's ever going to respect you for leading that way. That's fantastic. That's a great way to end it. Uh, The last thing I wanted to ask, because if I'm sitting there and I'm listening to a show and and somebody's interviewing a guy named Flip Flippin and never (laughs) asked if that was your given name... I mean, that may not be your first, second, or third. Well, I guess it is your – it's one of the stories. <laughs> yeah, it's one of them. I, listen, I was, I was in first grade when the teacher called out my real legal name, and mm-hmm. I didn't know who she was talking about. And she came <laughs> – Mitch, it's so sad. She came over and she said, Flip, I think this is you. And I said, no, ma'am, I'm Flip. And she said, no, no, I think this is your legal name. And I was like, you mean I'm not Flip? <laughs> And she's like, no, sweetheart, you're not. And I started crying, Mitch, and got uh-huh. sent down to the nurse's station. So I've been Flip all my life. Well, I, and, 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 and we are grateful. <laughs> Flip Flippins, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We'll be linking up on our show page and on LinkedIn to and all the links about your new book, first of all, your third story, Author of the Life You Were Meant to Live, which is by Flip Flippin and some work from Dr. Chris White as well. And then, of course, his original New York Times bestseller, which if, if you've never read, is, is just a classic. And that's the flip side, breaking the behaviors that hold you back. You must also check out the incredible website, which I did over the last few days. It's loaded with so much great and helpful information. That's at flippingroup.com, and we'll link to that. Thank you so much, sir. This has been really great. And and I did mention this to you before, but I'm going to throw it out again. Flip is a Stephen Austin graduate. 
<laughs> and for those of you that follow college basketball, one of the greatest upsets, which just proves anything can happen any day in sports, beat Duke. So congratulations hey, on that thanks, win. Thanks. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that you were probably the reason you met with the team right before the game and hey, you said, hey. guys, you need to know that your third story is beating Duke. Yeah, yeah. No comment. I'm proud. And don't say it was a great upset. You never know, Mitch. We may this do is it true. again. This man. is true. Well wait, the final four is coming up. Although I they, I think they, they lost to Rutgers and, yeah, and, I'm, and we're in New Jersey. Nah, we're and out. Trust me. We're out. <laughs> it's not great. Listen, thanks everybody for listening. Remember when it comes to saving for your your first story, for your second story, and for your third story, and all the dreams you have in life, remember to always pay yourself first. Have a great week. 